So join us on a journey this week as we tell the story of Chris Benoit. For anyone familiar with the Chris Benoit story, you already know the conclusion to this story. But what I would like to do is put across the career of one of the best wrestlers to ever grace a wrestling ring, because there are two clearly different sides to the man that is Chris Benoit. And it's important to note the impact he had on the wrestling industry before his untimely death changed his legacy. Christopher Michael Benoit was born Montreal, Quebec, Canada on May 21st, 1967, the son of Michael and Margaret Benoit. He grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, from where he was billed throughout the bulk of his career. He also has a sister living near Edmonton. During his childhood and early adolescence in Edmonton, Benoit idolised wrestlers Tom Dynamite Kid Billington and Bret Hart. At 12 years old, he attended a local wrestling event at which the two performers stood out above everyone else that he watched. Benoit trained to become a professional wrestler in the famous Hart Family Dungeon, receiving education from family patriarch Stu Hart. In ring, Benoit emulated both Billington and Bret Hart, cultivating a high-risk style and physical appearance more reminiscent of the former. Later years, he adopted Hart's trademark sharpshooter, which is a finishing hold. For those of you who are not familiar with the wrestling industry, the Hart Family Dungeon produced some of the most legendary wrestling talent to ever step foot in the ring, or as it's known in wrestling, the squared circle. Some of the wrestlers to come out of this same training facility include, but are not limited to, Bret Hart and Owen Hart, Superstar Billy Graham, Greg Valentine, Bad News Allen, Davy Boy Smith, otherwise known as the British Bulldog, Brian Pillman, Justin Liger, Chris Jericho, Lance Storm, Tyson Kidd, and the first female graduate, Natalia Neidhart, currently performing in WWE as Natty. So this should give you an indication of just how high of a standard Chris Benoit was trained to. We're talking many of a Hall of Fame wrestler on that list. Even if you're not really familiar with wrestling, you've probably at least heard the name Bret Hart and the British Bulldog out of that list. Two very, very famous and talented athletes of their time. Um, so you can see just how high of a standard Chris Benoit had already reached in just by being accepted into this training facility that is the Hart Family Dungeon. So, as I said, Chris Benoit has a very legendary career. And with that, let's get into what was his mammoth career. Um, first of all, Chris began his career with Stampede Wrestling between 1985 and 1989. It was noted during his work in this time that his wrestling style bore similarities to his favourite wrestler, Tom Billington, better known in the industry as the Dynamite Kid. It was here that he learned and adopted many of his moves, such as his infamous diving headbutt and his snap suplex. He even went as far as having the billing of Dynamite Chris Benoit. This just goes to show you how much of a fan he was, that he was studying in depth you know, Tom Billington's moveset and then adopting it taking part of his wrestling name as well uh, as a way to pay homage to him. It really is incredible, his love and admiration for the Dynamite Kid. According to Benoit, in his very first match, he attempted to complete the diving headbutt before learning how to land correctly, and as such, had the wind knocked out of him. He said he would never do the move again at that point. His debut match was a tag team match on November 22nd, 1985, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, 
where he teamed with the remarkable Rick Patterson against Butch Moffat and Mike Hammer, which Benoit's team won. After Benoit pinned Moffat with a sunset flip, the first title Benoit ever won was the Stampede British Commonwealth Middle Heavyweight Championship on March 18th, 1988 against Gamma Singh. During his tenure in Stampede, he won four international tag team and three more British Commonwealth titles and had a lengthy feud with Johnny Smith that lasted for over a year, which both men traded back and forth the British Commonwealth title. In 1989, Stampede closed its doors later that year. And with a recommendation from Bad News Allen, Benoit departed for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Chris arrived in New Japan Pro Wrestling in 1986 and worked there until 1994. Benoit spent about a year training in their New Japan dojo with the younger wrestlers to improve his abilities. While in the dojo, he spent months doing strenuous activities like push-ups and floor sweeping before stepping into the ring. He made his Japanese debut in 1986 under his real name. In 1989, he started wearing a mask and assuming the name The Pegasus Kid. Benoit said numerous times that he originally hated the mask, but it eventually became a part of him. While with New Japan, he came into his own as a performer in critically acclaimed matches with luminaries like Jushin Thunder Liger, Shinjiro Otani, Black Tiger and El Samurai in their junior heavyweight division. In August 1990, he won his first major championship, the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship from Jushin Thunder Liger. He eventually lost the title in November 1990. Back to Liger forcing him to reinvent himself as the wild Pegasus. Benoit spent the next couple of years in Japan winning the best of the Super Juniors tournament twice in 93 and 95, and he went on to win the inaugural Super J Cup tournament in 1994, defeating Black Tiger, Gado, and the great Sasuke in the finals. Chris then moved over to World Championship Wrestling in June of 1992, teaming up with fellow Canadian wrestler Biff Wellington for the NWA World Tag Team Championship Tournament. They were defeated by Brian Pillman and Jushin Thunder Liger in the first round at Clash of Champions 19. He did not return to WCW until January of 1993 at Clash of Champions 22, defeating Brad Armstrong. A month later at Super Brawl 3, he lost to two cold Scorpio, getting pinned with only three seconds left in the 20-minute time limit. At the same time, he formed a tag team with Bobby Eaton. After he and Eaton lost to Scorpio and Marcus Bagwell at Slamboree, Benoit headed back to Japan. It was in 1994 that Chris Benoit began working with Extreme Championship Wrestling, or as it's widely known, ECW. In between tours of Japan, he was booked as a dominant wrestler there, gaining notoriety as the Crippler, after he put Rocco Rocco out. In August 1994, Benoit competed in a one-night eight-man tournament for the vacant NWA World Heavyweight Championship, losing to two Cold Scorpio in the quarterfinals. At November to remember, Benoit accidentally broke Sabu's neck within the opening seconds of their match. The injury came when Benoit threw Sabu with the intention that he take a face-first pancake bump, but Sabu attempted to turn mid-air and take a backdrop bump instead. He did not achieve full rotation and landed almost directly on his neck. After this match, Benoit returned to the locker room and broke down over the possibility that he might have paralysed someone. Paul Heyman, the head booker of ECW at the time, 
came up with the idea of continuing the crippler moniker for Benoit. From that point until his departure from ECW, he was known as Crippler Benoit. When he returned to WCW in October of 1995, WCW modified his ring name to Canadian Crippler Chris Benoit. In the rise and fall of ECW, the book, Heyman commented that he planned on using Benoit as a dominant heel for quite some time, before putting the company's main title, the ECW World Heavyweight Championship, on him to be the long-term champion of the company. Benoit and Dean Malenko won the ECW World Tag Team Championship from Sabu and the Tasmaniac in February of 1995, Benoit's first American title. After winning, they were initiated into the Triple Threat Stable, led by ECW World Heavyweight Champion at the time, Shane Douglas. It was Douglas's attempt to recreate the Four Horsemen, as the three-man contingency held all three of the ECW championships at the time. Malenko also held the ECW World Television Championship. The team lost the championship to the public enemy that April at ECW three-way dance. Benoit spent some time in ECW feuding with the Steiner brothers and rekindling the feud with two cold Scorpio. He was forced to leave ECW after his work visa expired. Heyman was supposed to renew it, but he failed to make it on time. So Benoit left as a matter of job security and the ability to enter the United States. He toured Japan until WCW called. New Japan Pro Wrestling and World Championship Wrestling had a working relationship and because of their talent exchange programme, Benoit re-signed with WCW in late 1995, along with a number of talent working in New Japan at the time. This was to be part of an angle. Like the majority of those who came to WCW in exchange, he started out as a member of the cruiserweight division, having lengthy matches against many of his former rivals in Japan on almost every single broadcast. At the end of 95, Benoit went back to Japan as a part of the talent exchange to wrestle as a representative for New Japan in the Super J Cup second stage, defeating Lionheart in the quarterfinals. He received a bye into the quarterfinals for his work in 1995, similar to the way he advanced in the 94 edition, and losing to Gado in the semi-finals. After impressing higher-ups with his work, he was approached by Ric Flair and the WCW booking staff to become a member of the reformed Four Horsemen in 1995 alongside Flair, Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. He was introduced by Pillman as a gruff, no-nonsense heel, similar to his ECW persona, The Crippler. He was brought in to add a new dynamic for Anderson and Flair's tormenting of Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage in their alliance to end Hulkamania, which saw the Horsemen team up with the Dungeon of Doom. But that alliance ended with Dungeon leader and WCW booker Kevin Sullivan feuding with Pillman. When Pillman abruptly left the company for the WWF, Benoit was placed into this ongoing feud with Sullivan. This came to fruition through a dissension between the two in a tag team match with the two reluctantly teaming with each other against the public enemy, and Benoit being attacked by Sullivan at Slamboree. This led to the two having violent confrontations at pay-per-views, which led to Sullivan booking a feud in which Benoit was having an affair with Sullivan's real-life wife and on-screen valet, Nancy, also known as woman. Benoit and Nancy were forced to spend time together to make the affair look real holding hands in public, sharing hotel rooms. This on-screen relationship developed into real-life affair off-screen. As a result, Sullivan and Benoit had a contentious backstage relationship at best. Benoit did, however, admit 
having a certain amount of respect for Sullivan, saying on the DVD, Hard Knocks, the Chris Benoit story, that Sullivan never took undue liberties in the ring during their feud, even though he blamed Benoit for breaking up his marriage. This continued for over the course of a year, with Sullivan having his enforcers apprehend Benoit in a multitude of matches. This culminated in a retirement match at Bash at the Beach, where Benoit defeated Sullivan. This was used to explain Sullivan going into a behind-the-scenes role where he would focus on his initial job of booking. In 1998, Benoit had a long feud with Booker T. They fought over the WCW World Television Championship until Booker lost the title to Fit Finley. Booker won a best-of-seven series, which was held between the two to determine a number-one contender. Benoit went up 3-1 to one before Booker caught up, forcing the seventh and final match on Monday Nitro. During the match, Bret Hart interjected himself, interfering on behalf of Benoit in an attempt to get him to join the New World Order. Benoit refused to win that way and told the referee what happened, getting himself disqualified. Booker refused that victory, instead opting for an eighth match at the Great American Bash to see who would fight Finley later that night. Booker won the final match and went on to beat Finley for the title. This feud significantly elevated both men's careers as singles competitors and both remained at the top of the mid-card afterward. In 1999, Benoit teamed with Dean Malenko once again and defeated Kurt Hennig and Barry Windham to win the WCW World Tag Team Championships. This led to a reformation of the four horsemen with the tag team champions Anderson and Steve Mongo McMichael. The two hunted after the tag team championship for several months, feuding with teams like Raven and Parry Saturn, or Billy Kidman and Rey Mysterio Jr. After a falling out with Anderson and McMichael, Benoit and Malenko left the Horseman. He won the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship before bringing together Malenko, Perry Saturn and Shane Douglas to reform the Revolution. The Revolution was a heel stable of younger wrestlers who felt slighted, both kayfabe and legitimate, by WCW management, believing they never gave them the chance to be stars, pushing older, more established wrestlers instead, despite their then-current questionable worthiness of their pushes. This led to the revolution seceding from WCW and forming their own nation, complete with a flag. This led to some friction being created between Benoit and the leader, Douglas, who called into question Benoit's heart in the group, causing Benoit to quit the group, thus turning face, and having his own crusade against the top stars, winning the TV title one more time, and the United States title from Jeff Jarrett in a ladder match in October 1999 on Nitro in Kansas City, Missouri. Benoit wrestled Bret Hart as a tribute to Owen Hart, who had recently died due to an equipment malfunction. Hart defeated Benoit by submission, and the two received a standing ovation and an embrace from guest ring announcer Harley Race. Benoit was unhappy working for WCW, one last attempt in January 2000 was made to try and keep him with WCW by putting the vacant WCW World Heavyweight Championship on him by defeating Sid Vicious at Sold Out. However, due to disagreements with management and to protest the promotion of Kevin Sullivan to head booker, Benoit left the company the next day alongside his friends Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko and Perry Saturn, forfeiting his title in the process. WCW then refused to acknowledge Benoit's victory as an official title reign, 
and Benoit's title reign was not listed in the title lineage at WCW.com. However, the WWF recognised Benoit's title win and Benoit's title reign is still listed in the title lineage at WWE.com. Benoit spent the next few weeks in Japan before heading to the WWF, who acknowledged his WCW World Heavyweight Championship win and presented him as a former world champion. Along with Guerrero, Saturn and Malenko, Benoit debuted in the WWF as a stable that became known as the Radicals. After losing their tryout matches upon entry, the Radicals aligned themselves with WWF champion Triple H and became a heel faction. Benoit quickly won his first title in the WWF just over a month later at WrestleMania 2000, pinning Chris Jericho in a triple threat match to win Kurt Angle's Intercontinental Championship. It was also in this time period that Benoit wrestled in his first WWF pay-per-view main event, challenging The Rock for the WWF Championship of Fully Loaded in July, and as part of a fatal four-way title match at Unforgiven in September. On both occasions, Benoit appeared to have won the title, only to have the decision reversed by then WWF Commissioner Mick Foley, due to cheating on Benoit's part. Benoit simultaneously entered into a long-running feud with Jericho for the Intercontinental title, with the two meeting at Backlash, Judgment Day and SummerSlam, Benoit winning all three matches. The feud finally culminated in Jericho defeating Benoit in a ladder match at the Royal Rumble in January of 2001. Benoit won the Intercontinental title three times between April 2000 and January 2001. In earlier 2001, Benoit broke away from the Radicals, who had recently reformed three months earlier and turned face, feuding first with his former stablemates and then with Kurt Angle, whom he wrestled and lost to at WrestleMania X7. He gained some amount of revenge after beating Angle in an ultimate submission match at Backlash. The feud continued after Benoit stole Angle's cherished Olympic gold medal. This culminated in a match at Judgment Day, where Angle won a two out of three falls match with the help of Edge and Christian. In response, Benoit teamed up with his former rival Jericho to defeat Edge and Christian in that night's tag team turmoil match. The next night on Rora's War, Benoit and Jericho defeated WWF Tag Team Champions Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H for their titles. The pair used the win as a springboard to challenge Austin for his WWF Championship. Benoit got two title matches the following week, first losing in a manner similar to the Montreal Screwjob in Calgary and then losing in a close match in Benoit's hometown of Edmonton. However, Benoit suffered a neck injury in a four-way TLC match that required surgery with Dr Lloyd Youngblood Despite this, he continued to wrestle until the King of the Ring, where he was pinned in a triple threat match versus Austin and Jericho. Benoit missed the next year due to his neck injury, missing the entire Invasion storyline. During the first WWE draft, he was the third wrestler picked by Vince McMahon to be part of the new SmackDown roster, although still on the injured list. However, when he returned, he did so as a member of the Raw roster. On his first night back, he turned heel again and aligned himself with Eddie Guerrero, and he feuded with Stone Cold Steve Austin briefly. He and Guerrero were then moved to SmackDown during a storyline open season on wrestler contracts, with Benoit taking his newly won Intercontinental Championship with him. Rob Van Dam defeated Benoit at SummerSlam and returned the title to Raw. After returning to SmackDown, he embarked on a feud with Kurt Angle, in which he defeated him at Unforgiven. 
On October 20th, 2002 at No Mercy, he teamed with Angle to win a tournament to crown the first ever WWE Tag Team Champions. They became tweeners after betraying Los Guerreros at Rebellion. Benoit and Angle made their successful title defence, defeating Los Guerreros. They lost the championships to Edge and Rey Mysterio on the November 7th episode of SmackDown in a 2 out of 3 falls match. They received a rematch at Survivor Series in a triple threat elimination match against Edge and Mysterio and Los Guerreros, but failed to win the titles after being the first team eliminated. The team split up shortly afterwards and Benoit became a face. Angle won his third WWE Championship from Big Show at Armageddon and Benoit faced him for the title at the 2003 Royal Rumble. The match was highly praised from fans and critics, although Benoit lost the match. He received a standing ovation for his efforts. Benoit returned to the tag team ranks, teaming with the returning Rhino. At WrestleMania 19, the WWE Tag Team Champions, Team Angle, Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin, put their titles on the line against Benoit and his partner Rhino and Los Guerreros in a triple threat tag team match. Team Angle retained when Benjamin pinned Chavo. In April of 2003, following WrestleMania 19, Benoit then feuded with John Cena and the full-blooded Italians, teaming with Rhino occasionally. In June of 2003, the WCW United States Championship was reactivated and renamed the WWE United States Championship, and Benoit participated in the tournament for the title. He lost in the final match to Eddie Guerrero at Vengeance. The two feuded over the title for the next month, and Benoit went on to defeat the likes of A-Train, Big Show, and eliminating Brock Lesnar by submission at Survivor Series as part of a Survivor Series elimination tag team match between Team Angle against Team Lesnar. As a result, Benoit challenged Lesnar for the WWE Championship on the December 4th episode of SmackDown, but lost after passing out to Lesnar's debuting Brock Lock submission hold. General Manager Paul Heyman had a vendetta against Benoit along with Lesnar, preventing him from gaining a shot at Lesnar's WWE title. When Benoit won a qualifying match for the 2004 Royal Rumble against the full-blooded Italians in a handicap match with John Cena, Heyman named him as the number one entry. On January 25, 2004, he won the Royal Rumble by last eliminating the Big Show and thus earned a world title shot at WrestleMania 20. He became only the second WWE performer to win the Royal Rumble as the number one entrant along with Shawn Michaels. With Benoit being on the SmackDown brand at the time, it was assumed that he was going to compete for the brand's championship, the WWE Championship. However, Benoit exploited a loophole in the rules and was traded on Raw the following night to announce he will instead challenge World Heavyweight Champion Triple H at WrestleMania. Though the match was originally intended to be a one-on-one -on -one match, Shawn Michaels, whose last man standing match against Triple H at the Royal Rumble for the World Heavyweight Championship ended in a draw, thought that he deserved to be in the main event. When it was time for Benoit to sign the contract, putting himself in the main event, Michaels superkicked him and signed his name on the contract, which eventually resulted in a triple threat match between Michaels, Benoit and the champion Triple H. On March 14th, 2004, at WrestleMania 20, Benoit won the World Heavyweight Championship by forcing Triple H to tap out to his signature submission move, the Crippler Crossface, in a highly acclaimed match. 
The match marked the first time the main event of WrestleMania ended in a submission. After the match, Benoit celebrated his win with then-reigning WWE champion Eddie Guerrero. The match was held at Backlash in Benoit's hometown of Edmonton. It was Michaels who ended up submitting to Benoit's sharpshooter, allowing Benoit to retain his title. The next night in Calgary, he and Edge won the World Tag Team title from Batista and Ric Flair, making Benoit a double champion. The three months following his victory at Backlash, Benoit and Edge engaged in a rivalry with La Resistance for the World Tag Team Championships, which saw a series of matches while simultaneously having confrontations with Kane over the world title. Benoit wrestled in two matches at Bad Blood in his respective rivalries. He and Edge failed to regain their World Tag Team title while he successfully defended the world title against Kane. A month later, at Vengeance, Benoit retained the title against Triple H. On August 15th of 2004, Benoit was defeated by Randy Orton for the World Heavyweight Championship at SummerSlam. Benoit then teamed with William Regal at Unforgiven against Ric Flair and Batista in a winning effort. Benoit then feuded with Edge, who had turned into an arrogant and conceited heel, leading to Taboo Tuesday, where Benoit, Edge and Shawn Michaels were all put into a poll to see who should face Triple H for the World Heavyweight title that night. Michaels received the most votes and as a result, Edge and Benoit were forced to team up to face the then tag team champions La Resistance in the same night. However, Edge deserted Benoit during the match and Benoit was forced to take on both opponents. He still managed to win the World Tag Team title. At Survivor Series, Benoit sided with Randy Orton's team while Edge teamed with Triple H's team and while Edge was able to pin Benoit after a pedigree, Orton's team won. The Benoit-Edge feud ended at New Year's Revolution. The feud stopped abruptly as Edge feuded with Shawn Michaels and Benoit entered the Royal Rumble. The two then continued to have matches in the following weeks until the two of them, Chris Jericho, Shelton Benjamin, Kane and Christian, were placed in the Money in the Bank ladder match at WrestleMania 21. Edge won the match by knocking Benoit off of and smashing his arm with the ladder. The feud finally culminated in a last man standing match at Backlash, which Edge won with a brick shot to the back of Benoit's head. On June 9th, Benoit was drafted back to SmackDown after being the first man selected by the SmackDown brand in the 2005 draft lottery and participated in an ECW style revolution against the SmackDown Heels. Benoit appeared at one night stand, defeating Eddie Guerrero. On July 24th, the Great American Bash, Benoit failed to win the WWE United States Championship from Orlando, Jordan, but won a rematch at SummerSlam in 25 seconds. Benoit then won three consecutive matches against Jordan in less than a minute. Benoit later wrestled Booker T in a friendly competition until Booker and his wife Charmel cheated Benoit out of the United States title in October. On November the 13th, 2005, Eddie Guerrero was found dead in his hotel room. The following night, Raw held a Guerrero tribute show hosted by both Raw and SmackDown wrestlers. Benoit was devastated at the loss of his best friend and was very emotional during a series of video testimonials. He eventually broke down on camera. Some of his colleagues state that he was never the same after Eddie's death. The same week on SmackDown, 
Benoit defeated Triple H in a tribute match to his fallen friend. Following the contest, Benoit, Helmsley and Dean Malenko all assembled in the ring and pointed to the sky in salute of Guerrero. After controversy surrounding the US title defence against Booker T, Theodore Long set up a best-of-seven series between the two. Booker T won three times in a row due largely to his wife's interference and Benoit faced elimination in the series. Benoit won the fourth match to stay alive at Armageddon. But after the match, Booker suffered a legitimate groin injury and Randy Orton was chosen as a stand-in. Benoit defeated Orton twice by disqualification. However, in the seventh and final match, Orton defeated Benoit with the help of Booker T, Charmel and Orlando Jordan and Booker captured the US title. Benoit feuded with Orton for a short time before defeating Orton in a no-holds-barred match on the January 27th episode of SmackDown via Crippler Crossface. Benoit was given one last chance at the US title at No Way Out and won it by making Booker submit to the Crippler Crossface, ending the feud. The next week on SmackDown, Benoit kayfabe broke John Bradshaw Layfield's, or as he's known, JBL, hand. JBL actually only needed surgery to remove a cyst from that hand. But a match was set up for the two at WrestleMania 22 for Benoit's title. And for the next several weeks, they attacked each other. At WrestleMania, JBL won the match with an illegal cradle to win the title. Benoit used his rematch clause two weeks later in a steel cage match on SmackDown, but JBL again won with illegal tactics. Benoit entered the King of the Ring tournament only to be defeated by Finlay in the opening round. After Finlay struck Benoit's neck with a chair and delivered a Celtic cross. On October the 8th, Benoit made his return at No Mercy, defeating William Regal in a surprise match. Later that week, he won his fifth United States Championship from Mr Kennedy. Benoit then engaged in a feud with Chavo and Vicky Guerrero. He wanted answers from the Guerreros for their rash behaviour towards Rey Mysterio, but was avoided by the two, and was eventually assaulted. This led to the two embarking on a feud with title implications at the coming two pay-per-views. The feud culminated with one last title match as a no-disqualification match, which was also won by Benoit. Later, Montel Vontavious Porter, known as MVP, claimed that he was the best man to hold the US title and challenged Benoit for the title at WrestleMania 23, where Benoit retained. Their rivalry continued with similar results again at Backlash. At Judgment Day, however, MVP gained the upper hand and won the title in a two out of three falls match, thus ending the feud. On the June 11th episode of Raw, Benoit was drafted from SmackDown to ECW as part of the 2007 WWE Draft. On June 19th, Benoit wrestled his final match, defeating Elijah Burke in a match to determine who would compete for the vacated ECW World Championship at Vengeance on June 24th. Benoit missed the weekend house shows, telling WWE officials that his wife and son were vomiting blood due to food poisoning. When he failed to show up for the pay-per-view, viewers were informed that he was unable to compete due to a family emergency and he was replaced in the match by Johnny Nitro, who won the match and became the ECW World Champion. The crowd spent the majority of the match chanting for Benoit 
and WWE executive Stephanie McMahon later indicated that Benoit would have defeated CM Punk for the championship had he been present for the event. So, as you've heard, and as I said at the beginning of this, Chris Benoit had a very extensive career, crossing across multiple promotions, multiple championships, many experiences, many injuries, um, lots of traumas to the head, neck and shoulders. Um, and when you know his moveset, you probably know a little bit more why. Um, because Benoit included a wide array of submission holds in his moveset and used what he called a crossface, as later dubbed the crippler crossface, and a sharpshooter as his finishing moves. He also used a diving headbutt to finish off opponents. Now, the diving headbutt basically saw Chris Benoit leap off of the top rope and land headfirst on the opponent. This was partially to blame for the head trauma that Benoit received, which ultimately did a lot of the damage which caused him to commit the crimes that I'm about to speak to you about. Another of Benoit's trademark moves was three rolling German suplexes. This move would later be mimicked by multiple other wrestlers, including Brock Lesnar, who uses it as his move called Suplex City. Benoit was renowned for his high-impact technical style and former WWE rival Kurt Angle said in a 2017 interview that he has got to be in the top three of all time. So you can see here that he's well-respected, well-liked, um, it comes across as a, a very impressive professional, um, however suffered a lot of injuries due to the work that he did put in inside the ring. Now that we've gone through Chris's career and understood why his moveset has caused possibly some of the things that happened to happen, it's important that we understand Chris's personal life also. Chris was a man that spoke both English and French fluently. He married twice and had two children, David and Megan, with his first wife, Nartina. However, by 1997, that marriage had broken down and Benoit was living with Nancy Sullivan, which we mentioned before. This was the lady that's the wife of the WCW booker and frequent opponent, Kevin Sullivan. On February 25th, 2000, Chris and Nancy's son, Daniel, was born. And on November 23rd, 2000, Chris and Nancy married. It was Nancy's third marriage. In 2003, Nancy filed for divorce from Benoit, citing the marriage as irrevocably broken and alleging cruel treatment. She claimed that he would break and throw furniture around. She later dropped the suit as well as the restraining order she had filed. So already here we can see that Chris's injuries are taking a toll on him personally. The death of his best friend, Eddie Guerrero, um, also taking a, a huge toll on him emotionally. And then his marriage is breaking down. He appears to be in a very toxic relationship. And all of these things are going around in Chris's head, um, basically becoming like a, a chemical imbalance. Um, all not putting him on the greatest of paths, um, all dragging him down um, and probably not making him feel great. And I believe this is probably one of the, the biggest clues of possibly what was about to come. Um, very, very sad circumstances. On June 25th, 2007, police entered Benoit's home in Fayetteville, Georgia, when WWE, Benoit's employers at the time, requested a welfare check after Benoit missed weekend events without notice, leading to concerns. 
When the officers entered, they discovered the bodies of Benoit, his wife Nancy and their seven-year-old son Daniel at around 2.30pm. Upon investigating, no additional suspects were sought by authorities. It was determined that Benoit had committed the murders over a three-day period. Benoit had killed his wife and son before committing suicide. His wife was bound before the killing. Benoit's son was drugged with Xanax and likely unconscious before Benoit strangled him. Benoit then committed suicide by hanging himself on his lateral pull-down machine. WWE cancelled the scheduled three-hour-long live Raw show on June 25th and replaced the broadcast version with a three-hour tribute to his life and career featuring his past matches, segments from the Hard Knocks, Chris Benoit Story DVD and comments from wrestlers and announcers. However, once the details of the murder-suicide became apparent, WWE quickly and quietly began distancing itself from the wrestler by removing merchandise and no longer mentioning him. The June 26th episode of ECW began with Vince McMahon addressing the TV audience about the circumstances and announcing that there would be no mention of Benoit that night other than his comments. After the deaths, toxicology reports released on July 17, 2007 revealed that at the time of the death, Nancy had three different drugs in her system, Xanax, hydrocodone and hydromorphone, all of which were found at therapeutic rather than toxic levels. Daniel was found to have Xanax in his system, which led the chief medical examiner to believe that he was sedated before he was murdered. Benoit was found to have Xanax, hydrocodone and an elevated level of testosterone caused by a synthetic form of the hormone in his system. The chief medical examiner attributed the testosterone level to Benoit possibly being treated for a deficiency caused by previous steroid abuse or testicular insufficiency. There was no indication that anything in Benoit's body contributed to his violent behaviour that led to the murder-suicide, concluding that there was no roid rage involved. Prior to the murders and suicide, Benoit had been given illegal steroids not in compliance with WWE's talent wellness programme in February 2006. Benoit received Nandrolone and Anastrozole and during the investigation into steroid abuse, it was revealed that other wrestlers had also begun with steroids. After the double murder-suicide, former wrestler Christopher Nowinski contacted Michael Benoit, the father of Chris Benoit, suggesting that years of trauma to his son's brain may have led to his actions. Tests were conducted on Benoit's brain by Julian Bales, the head of neurosurgery at West Virginia University, and results showed that Benoit's brain was so severely damaged it resembled the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. He was reported to have had an advanced form of dementia similar to the brains of four retired NFL players who had suffered multiple concussions, sank into depression and harmed themselves or others. Bales and his colleagues concluded that repeated concussions can lead to dementia, thus in turn contributing to severe behavioural problems. Benoit's father suggests that brain damage may have been the leading cause of the crime. Once the details of Benoit's actions became apparent, WWE made the decision to remove nearly all mentions of Benoit from their website, from future broadcasts and all publications. Now, many of Chris's friends and fellow wrestlers have come out in his defence 
saying that they do not believe he could have committed these crimes and everybody that knew Chris would attest to him being a quiet, private and heartfelt guy and that he would be the last guy you would pick out of a lineup that would have committed these horrible acts. Chris Jericho commented during an interview with Larry King on Chris's relationship with his wife Nancy and son Daniel where he said that Chris idolised all of his children and that he loved them incredibly and that he and Benoit used to exchange pictures with each other of their children whilst catching up as they were great friends. Jericho even stated that if he were ever in a pinch with childcare, he without question would have left his children in the care of Benoit and his wife Nancy and known that they would have had received nothing but the utmost care that they deserved. So obviously this is a testament to Chris's character and makes the events of the day even more strange and apparently out of character. His parents seem to have not been able to conceive the idea that their son could have done this either. Probably as any parents would in this situation. And everyone has commented that the death of his close personal friend and colleague Eddie Guerrero changed him in such a way that he was never quite the same person after his death. Now, as with every high-profile event, comes a huge amount of conspiracy. And some people believe that Chris did not do this, even to the point that during the research for this, I came across a post on IGN.com where a user by the name of Ahmad One, shout out to you, Ahmad One, posted 24 reasons why Chris Benoit is innocent. Um, so just to present you with a different side of things, different side of the story, we're going to go through each of these 24 reasons now and see how much of an argument they present or perhaps how ludicrous they are. Um, because there are a lot of these conspiracies out there and whilst some of them may have great foundings and present great arguments, some of them are absolutely ludicrous. Um, so let's start off with number one, Chava Guerrero. A close friend of Benoit, he told WW Magazine that he talked to Chris for a while on Friday night on his house phone. And about 45 minutes into the conversation, Chris told him that there was somebody knocking at the door and he was going to see who it was. And shortly after Chris answered the door, there was a scuffle and then his house line went dead. And Chris could only be reached on his cell phone about three hours later. Now, this is very significant. This explains why there was no forced entry. Chris let the killer or killers in. Now, that's a bold statement to say that, that he let killers or killers in. It, that scuffle could have been anything at the door. He could have been distracted at home. There's no validity to any of this. You don't know if anyone was there or not. Um, and... Although it's possible, no evidence was ever found to support this account. I would imagine that Chris is probably living in a house with CCTV as well as his neighbours. I can't imagine living in, him living in a deprived area. Um, so if anything, I think people would have been found lurking or seen on CCTV somewhere. You would have seen this scuffle outside. So I think we can probably rule out number one. Number two on the list of the 24 reasons was after Chavo reached Chris on his cell phone, he said that Chris sounded very odd, groggy and tired. He also said that Chris told him, I love you, Chavo, which sounded forced. The WWE also said that when Chris called in and told them that Nancy and Daniel were sick, he did not sound like himself. He sounded groggy. Chris then said, I love you, 
which they say was out of context because he usually didn't say this. Now, I can imagine that he probably has said this, you know, at this point, he probably knows full well what he's done um, and is trying to make amends for that with his character before he did anything to himself. Also, with the amount of drugs that were in his system, it's possible that these drugs were starting to take an effect and these calls were made just before he committed suicide. So, strange, yes. Any kind of a conspiracy? No. I think these are the signs of a very confused and mentally ill man who's on a lot of drugs at this point. Um, I'm not saying that that was his life, but at this point when he's committed these acts, he's got a lot of drugs in his system and therefore is not acting the way he would normally do. That's not a massive surprise. So I don't believe there's anything here really with any kind of validity to investigate any further um, as to being part of a conspiracy theory and that Chris didn't do this, these terrible acts. So I don't think number two can be really accounted for in any any way at all. Uh, number three on the list was Chris Benoit's cell phone is missing. The police cannot find his cell phone or the needles. They say Chris used to inject himself with steroids shortly before he died. The police have turned his cell phone off. Now, maybe there was evidence on the phone. He did not want it to be found and therefore he disposed of it. Also, if the police turned it off, surely with location services, they would have known where it was switched off and when. So I believe it's more of a case that it's been disposed of and just didn't get found. And therefore now is is never going to work. Um, and the fact that you couldn't find the steroids that he supposedly injected into himself and therefore implying that somebody has purposely injected him with these steroids and then made off with the evidence. I can see where people would be coming from with this. However, I, it's clutching at straws. I don't think there's anything here enough worth to be investigating it for any other reason. Um, I think we're looking for reasons and answers and when we do this, sometimes we can almost make up scenarios. I don't somehow believe this, but I can see with, you know, point one with the scuffle and point three, you know, could an intruder have come in? Could a scuffle have been had? Could someone have purposely injected Chris and then taken his phone and started sending messages? You know... Yes, I can see how people get there. Do I believe this is the case? No. And where where are the reports that say they couldn't find these needles? Did he inject at home? Did he inject in a, a public bathroom toilet where he's then disposed of the needle inside a sanitary bin or any kind of thing like that? You, it's it's just too wide ranging. I I, I just don't see the validity of this one either. Um, although I can appreciate how people have come to this conclusion with the information available reason number four on this list 
Chris was not hanging from the weight machine. He was laying on the floor underneath the machine. Another officer said that Benoit was slumped against the weight machine. Okay, so... To me, this just could be the final resting place for Chris's body. It could be that that is how he fell after his neck had reportedly snapped. Um, so basically, if you were confused as to how Chris had actually committed suicide, he hanged himself on his lateral weight machine. So he balanced a lot of weights and then put the noose around his neck and then therefore was snapping his neck. Now, obviously, when you do that, I would imagine your body's going to fall somewhere. So I don't think this indicates that any foul play was involved or that somebody else was there doing this to Chris. Um, I think this is something that's very logical that he's probably done to himself and that was the final resting place of his body. So I don't see anything really in reason four. Reason five, there was a white cloth wrapped around Chris's neck. If he was so suicidal, why would he care if his neck was bruised? Now, um, admittedly for me, this is a strange one. Um, it could just be that he didn't want to horrify the people that were going to find him. You know, he didn't know who was going to be that person to find him. He might not have known that the WWE would call police for a welfare check. Um, he could have assumed that maybe his mother or father would see it and wouldn't appreciate what was going on. Um, and obviously, you know, if his mother was to see it, that would horrify her seeing that around his neck. So, You know, is there any other reason for it being there? Not really. I don't know if it was ever tested for having any kind of chemicals or anything on it. Um, it's not been suggested anywhere that the cloth was responsible for killing Chris via strangulation. So, to me, no validity or any lead in number five. Uh, number six, the medical examiner says that Chris Benoit died on Saturday... The text messages sent were sent on Sunday. Chris was already dead, so who sent the text messages? It is noted that nobody talked to Chris on Sunday. Now, this is strange, but although the medical examiner believes Chris died on Saturday, does not mean that he did. So it is possible that Chris still sent these messages. I just think we're guessing with time frames here. Nobody knows exactly what happened. Again, we're clutching at you know the very menial facts that we do have and therefore we're surmising scenarios of what could and couldn't have happened i i believe that those messages were sent by chris i don't believe there was anybody else in the house sending these messages and that the medical examiner obviously they know, obviously they're trained they're highly skilled people they know what they're looking for and they know what they're doing doesn't mean that they can't be wrong everyone can be wrong and so everyone immediately hears this and their ears prick up. Well, if it wasn't Chris, who sent the messages? Well, you know, there's a very small window of time between it being Saturday and Sunday. So, again, clutching. Very, very thin straws there, really, for me. Point number seven. The steroids found in Chris's house were not in his body. This is irrelevant does not mean that just because they were found there that does not make it suspicious you know Chris was known in the past he'd failed 
tests against the WWE wellness policy for steroid use, he was given a warning. He was then tested after that and tested clean. They could have been in the house from the last time that he took them. Um, the ones that were found in his body could have been ones that he'd picked up on that day or from a different prescription. This has no bearing on whether he did or didn't do this. And therefore, to me, renders this point irrelevant. Um, point eight, if Chris had murdered his family, then why did he need to text people? Think about it. Everybody was dead. Nobody would hear him talking. So why text? Calling would have been easier. Uh, I believe the killer text at Benoit's address to get somebody to come to the house to find the bodies. Disagree. He knew that in his voice, people would hear a difference. And therefore, if by texting he could get his message across without having to speak with anyone, this would have been the quickest and easiest form of communication for someone who was not in the right frame of mind due to the horrific acts that he'd just carried out. You know, the only people he knew he would have to call was obviously his employers, which he did. Um, and obviously he called Chavo. And Chavo was family with what was his best friend, Eddie Guerrero. So these are the the two sets of people that probably he respected the most, which is why he called them. Um, you know, the amount of calls that he made, if he made a call to everyone with his voice sounding that way, he knew he was going to be found out and therefore, you know, would have been in custody and wouldn't have been able to commit the act on himself. So... I I don't think there's a case of there being a killer. I, I still believe that Chris was the killer. Um, I, I still don't believe that point eight really points to anything of any significance. It's just factual. He texts some people. He called some people. End of. Point nine on the list. Chris sent Charvo a text message telling him his address. Why would he do this? Charvo already knew where Chris lived. He spent the previous weekend with him. Okay, again, not really sure how this comes into play in the conspiracy. Um, you know, take into account that Chris was drugged heavily. He may not have been communicating coherently and therefore included unnecessary details. You know, when you've done what you've done, are you in your right frame of mind if you're Chris Benoit? No. You're not thinking about whether someone knows your address. You're thinking that you need to get the information out. Who can you trust to give the correct information out? And therefore, he texts Charvo, um, someone who he cared very deeply about. And he knew he could trust in this situation. So I don't think this is a case of somebody taking Chris's phone and sending a text with information that people already knew. I I still believe these messages have come from Chris. Nothing in this one for me. Point 10 on the list. Chris's body was badly decomposed, about the same as Nancy's. This shows he died sooner than Sunday. Okay, so this goes back to the same as the medical examiner, saying he dies on Saturday. People's bodies have different decompositions. I would imagine this does not add up to conclusive proof of anything. Um, Again, we're clutching. Nobody knows exactly what points these people died. We're guessing. I don't think you can base any kind of scientific finding on what we're hearing here. You know, 
uh, no, uh, not for me. Um, it's it's too sketchy. Yes, you have to go by you know there's a certain set of criteria I guess that a medical examiner uses to determine when the body was was last living, and yes, Chris's may have come up into this category. But what's to say that they can't be wrong? Um, and so I I don't see anything in that. No, no concrete evidence there for me. Point 11. Why would he tie up Nancy to kill her? He was a big guy. He could have just hit her with one good shot, one good time, and she would have been out. Okay, that's true. But Nancy was also found with a lot of drugs in her system. And maybe he tied her up to prevent her from getting up and stop him killing himself. As he didn't know, also in his drugged and incoherent state, whether she was actually dead or whether the tablets that had been put in would have an effect. So I think this was more just to ensure that they could all die. Point 12 on the list. The world press is reporting the manner of the deaths wrong. He says, and I quote, this is from somebody called Ray, he says that Daniel was shot in his head and that Nancy was shot in her chest. There has never been any evidence to support this. This is pure speculation. Sensationalism at its finest across the internet. People making up things. There is no evidence to suggest this. Um, nothing has come out in reports since. Don't believe that. It's pure conjecture. Point 13 on the list. Charvo said that Chris Benoit seemed worried about something, but he could not get Chris to open up and tell him why he was worried. You know, this is similar probably to a lot of men in this era and in this present day who struggle to open up about mental health and that perhaps he was depressed and ill and was struggling to deal with that and he knew he'd not be able to provide for his family as he had done and this maybe had weighed heavily on his mind. You know, these are high-flying sports professionals who put their bodies on the line every day, sustain injuries work through injuries particularly in this era and you know maybe he was struggling with a lot of things and a lot of men feel shame in crying and feel shame in ad admitting there's something wrong and asking for help and particularly someone who has this tough guy persona who's in a world of other guys that are tough guys you know it's something that maybe he just could not open up about that doesn't mean it's anything to do with someone killing him I, I don't think again there's enough evidence there to support this as a, a viable theory um so I, I'm, I'm i'm reluctant to give any credence to this point on the list point 14 there was no bible besides chris's body why would he place a bible beside nancy and daniel and not place one beside his own if he knew he was about to take his own life now Number one, how many Bibles does one house have, for a start? Um, number two, because perhaps knowing the acts he committed, that even if he put a, a Bible by his body, that he would not go to heaven due to the amount of evil he had just perpetrated. Remember, we are trying to think with the mind of a mentally ill man who is also impaired by drugs in his system, making him very incoherent and acting oddly. So... 
again, don't think there's any kind of evidence here to support an outside party perpetrating his acts. Point 15 on the list. There were 10 empty beer cans and an empty bottle of wine beside Chris's body. He tested negative for alcohol. Now, this one did interest me the most, probably out of all 24 on the list. But surely, would police not have DNA tested the cans and bottles? Also, just because they were there by Chris's body does not mean that they had not been there longer than the period that he would have still had an alcohol trace in his body. So, you know, the wine, could that have been Nancy's? Was her body tested for alcohol? There's too many variables here. It did interest me because it's a very interesting theory almost made to have been put there, for example, by somebody else to indicate that this had a role in the killings. Um, But again, no evidence of anybody being in the house other than the three of them. Um, And again, like I said, just because they were there doesn't mean they were consumed in that period of time. They could have been consumed days before, you know, how many of us leave cans and bottles and cups and plates and things lying around until we can be bothered to deal with them. You know, he may have been a celebrity, doesn't mean he's not a normal person as well at the same time. So no real findings there for me, apart from a a slightly interesting point. Point 16 on the list. The toxicology report confirmed that Chris had hydrocodone, which is a painkiller, Xanax, which is an anti-anxiety drug. Um, Those two drugs combined will sedate Chris and make him very sleepy so he could not fight back. This is possible, although it's more likely that he took the combination so that when he placed himself into his noose to hang himself, that if he fell asleep, he wouldn't notice the pain so much and then died and he was trying to make it less painful. So I don't believe it. he was administered these by anyone to try and ensure that he wouldn't fight back. Um, again, I can see where people are coming from. I can see how you would come to this conclusion. It does make it more exciting for people to think that there is another person involved in this and that their hero couldn't have possibly done this especially when you have a lot of people vouching for what kind of a person Chris was and that they could never see him doing this kind of act. So, you know, this would add credence to to that conspiracy theory and I get it. I get why people search for these kind of answers. Um, But factually, with evidence, at the moment there is nothing to support this. There's nothing to support another person being involved in these acts or in this house at the time. So, unfortunately, again doesn't hold any credence to the fact. Point 17. The police originally said that Daniel died on Friday because his body was badly decomposing. This supports a belief that all three died on Friday night. The police changed the manner of Daniel's death three times. First, they said he died from a garbage bag. Second, he died from a chokehold. Third, he was smothered by a pillow. Why would they keep changing? Well, this point... (laughs) Um, you know, it's possible that a lot of police at the time were speculating on the case and knew that the method was suffocation, but not sure exactly how he was suffocated. There are multiple police involved in this. They're not all going to come out with the same story necessarily. People are going to make conjecture for themselves. And although the police shouldn't be releasing any information like that without founded proof, we've seen it before in different cases that it has happened. And so, you know, 
people also could have surmised this themselves and this could have made way into reports. So it's not always coming from a reliable source. So I don't think, again, this holds up to any kind of amountable evidence of any other involvement from another party. The police kept changing the location of where Nancy's body was found. First, she was found in the downstairs family room. Second, she was found in the upstairs bedroom. Third of all, she was found in the house office. <laughs> okay, it's this is the same as the previous point. You know, this could just be bad information being circulated and passed to people who have contact with the media and therefore things are being released. I don't think this gives any kind of validity to a third party involvement. And therefore, I give no credibility to this point either. Point 19 on the list, Chris's father said that Chris called him on Father's Day and told him that he wished he could spend more time with his family, but that he had to work. One of Nancy's friends says that Nancy loved Chris, but that she also had plans to leave him. Now, what this suggests to me is that perhaps, you know, Chris had found out that maybe Nancy had plans to leave um, and that maybe this did make him very upset. You know, we don't know exactly the nature of their relationship in the last few days, particularly leading up to this incident. Did he find something out and did he ensure that she couldn't take a relationship with anyone else? The age old, if I can't have you, no one will. And, you know, was there a fit of rage? Did this all result because of him finding out what perhaps Nancy's plans were? I think that's a valid point. I think that this could have possibly caused these horrific acts. Uh, you know, someone who's not in a great state mentally, who then hears that the person they love the most is going to leave them, it's going to put them into an even further downward spiral. Uh, doesn't show any evidence of somebody else being involved in the killing, so, but it does, it, it does provide a, a pretty reasonable explanation as to why Chris perhaps had this fit of rage and committed these acts. So, point number 20 on the list. Retired wrestler Bam Bam Bigelow died January 19th, 2007. Sherry Martell died June 15th, 2007. The Benoit family died June 22nd, 2007. Since this family died, two other wrestlers have died. Brian Adams and Johnny Crush in July and August of 07. Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero and Brian Pillman all died the night before they were set to win title belts. And... Sherry Martel's death is even more suspicious. Um, Sherry Martel had ties to Nancy's ex-husband, Kevin Sullivan, who we'd previously mentioned before. Um, and the circumstances surrounding her death have never been released. Now, this does intrigue me. Um, I can see perhaps how people would surmise that perhaps Kevin has an involvement in the deaths of these people, particularly the Benoit family. I mean, after all, he would have a motive because Chris took Nancy from him. Currently, there is no proof to support this in any kind of evidence found at the scene or since the crimes were committed. Um, he is known to be quite a strange man, is the word about town. Um, involved in a few different things, which we'll cover, I believe, in a point that's coming up next. But... I would be intrigued to learn more about this uh, since reading this point. And could there be a link there? Possibly there could. But again, 
still fishing a bit. I don't think there's anything concrete there that we can go on. Um, but, but I could see how we could get to this conclusion. Point 21 on the list. Kevin Sullivan told Chris Benoit that he would kill him. Now, Kevin is a high-ranking member of a satanic cult. Um, Kevin was also on the WWE board of directors. Kevin Sullivan also had motive to kill Daniel Benoit because he was Chris and Nancy's offspring. Retired wrestler Dusty Rhodes said that he danced with the devil when working with Kevin Sullivan, who is known as being cold-hearted and conniving. The Benoit family was murdered on the 10-year anniversary of Nancy's divorce from Kevin Sullivan. Now, again, after talking about him in the previous point, there may be something in this one. After all, if anyone had any kind of reason to commit something like this with a good motive, obviously it would be Kevin Sullivan. Um, the fact that he's evolved, apparently, is a member of a satanic cult. Um, already had a disliking for Chris, would automatically dislike Daniel. Um, and obviously would have a hatred for Nancy now because Nancy left him. There's definitely a motive there. So if we ever were to find out there was a third party involved, would it surprise me if it was Kevin Sullivan? No. And I don't think it would be a surprise to a lot of wrestling fans out there. So if there's any kind of validity to any point on this list, I believe it may be this one. Um, but again, there is no concrete evidence either found at the scene or since the crimes that would point to Kevin being involved on that day. Point 22 on the list. Nancy Benoit's death was posted on the internet 14 hours before her body was found. Now, I'd need to do probably a lot more research about this point. Um, but if we're going by the fact that this was information changed on Wikipedia, this can be changed by anybody. Um, it's not the reliable source that everyone seems to think it is. It's not an encyclopedia. It's a web-based application that users can adjust information on. So it could have been someone paying a prank. How many times do you see now these days, particularly on Twitter, that, that someone's trending to have died when in fact they're still alive? <sighs> coincidence, pure coincidence, albeit odd, but again, coincidence. No validity. Point 23 on the list. Weeks before he died, Chris Benoit's colleague said that Chris began taking alternative routes to and from work and back to his house. Chris and Nancy believed that somebody was following them. Chris's friends dismissed his worries as paranoia. Now, this is a very interesting point and probably one of the most interesting on the list. Um, but it does sound something that would be completely legit and in line with paranoia due to the amount of steroids and other drugs that perhaps Chris was taking at the time. And at the time, the amount of concussions he would have sustained by this point and how ill he was, people would have found it hard probably to take him seriously. Um, and perhaps maybe it wasn't just paranoia, but something far more sinister. Um, Chris has apparently spoke about this at length with colleagues and they said that Nancy also believes someone was following them although I haven't been able to find anything that would corroborate this um, whilst researching on the internet so if it was the case uh, I believe that the person following probably would have been 
someone we've already mentioned on this podcast. But again, there is no evidence of this. This is all conjecture. Um, so again, what what can we say about that apart from the fact that could we see it happening? Yes. Do we know who probably would have carried it out? Yes. Does that mean it happened? No. Without concrete proof, innocent and superproven guilty, as we all know. And the last point on this list, point 24. The Benoit family was murdered the same week that the WWE had a storyline of who killed Vince McMahon. Now, being a wrestling fan and seeing this at the time, I remember this storyline very, very well. It's completely coincidental. Nothing to do with the Benoit family deaths. No link can be made. It's absolutely irrelevant why this point ever ended up on the list. Sorry to the guy who made this list, but that is just pure conjecture. You just shoved that in there at the end because it says killed. There was a murder. That's as close a link as you can get to this. Nothing in this and nothing to do with the theory of somebody else being involved in this whatsoever. So, there we have it. The story of Chris Benoit. Now, the story of Chris Benoit is one I tell with very mixed feelings. As, personally, I'm a huge wrestling fan. Myself, I grew up watching Benoit and remember a lot of his accomplishments and how happy I felt and thrilled I felt watching him wrestle. So when you get to the darker end of his story, it it makes me feel extremely sad that a legacy so great gets tarnished by what he did in the last few days of his life. Still, with so many unanswered questions for so many people, family, friends, colleagues and fans around the world, it should be noted that the WWE is constantly improving their wellness programme for talent and that after Benwell's death, systems and processes were reviewed to ensure that the company was doing the utmost to protect its talent. It was also noted by John Cena in an interview with Larry King that after Benoit's death, there were grief counsellors at live events for talent to deal with the information that they'd heard and the situation they were all going through, which I think is commendable on the WWE's part. Personally, on this subject, I don't go for the conspiracy theories. I believe this is a genuine case of extraordinary rage induced by a chemical imbalance, both from medical perspectives and mental health perspectives. Many people have stated that Chris was never the same since Eddie Guerrero died and that they started noticing changes in him. And I can believe this is fully possible. Death does change people quite significantly, depending on how close the people are to you. Chris Bemar's legacy will always be tainted, but his wrestling will be remembered for all the right reasons. His death, however, will be remembered for all the wrong ones. Currently, in present day, Chris's son from his first marriage, David, has fully trained now to be a wrestler and is currently working some independent shows with the hopes of making it perhaps to the grandest stage, whether it be with WWE or the newly formed AEW. He has been seen backstage at AEW events. Um, Not sure really how much of a future he could have in WWE considering the circumstances. Um... If you take one look at him, he's the spitting image of his father. Um, However, in terms of creative writing, if there's anyone that can make this angle work, um, 
it would be WWE. We've probably seen funnier and, and weirder storylines coming through than perhaps the one that could be set up with David. Um, the trouble is David could be the best wrestler in the world, but he's always going to be known as Chris Benoit's son. And due to the actions of his father, he is never going to be seen in in the light that he could have been if this hadn't happened, or perhaps on his own merits, which obviously is extremely unfair and harsh, but such is the modern world. For a career that reached the most incredible of highs, accomplishing so many things, building a career and creating a legacy, to be torn down to the lowest of lows in his suicide and the murder of his family, Chris Benoit will go down being known as one of the greatest wrestlers to never be in the WWE Hall of Fame. Thank you for listening to the story of Chris Benoit.